If you want to make something dirt cheap, you make it out of dirt, and preferably dirt that's locally sourced. So that batteries in India should be made with Indian resources in a manufacturing plant in India, staffed by Indian people. So that way they become authors of their own future. This is Climate Conversations, a podcast by ClimateX, the online community building a movement to solve our climate crisis. Welcome to Climate Conversations. I'm Rajesh Kasurangan here on a crisp day in Cambridge. And in this room, I have... Hi, I'm Laura House. Um, I'm a part of ClimateX, and I'm joined by... Kurt Newton, also part of ClimateX and with the Office of Digital Learning. And today, in a few minutes, we'll have Professor Don Sadaway, electrochemist and car enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot going on with Professor Sadaway. I first got to know him 10 years ago through working with OpenCourseWare, producing a really amazing version of his... Uh, freshman introduction to chemistry class. And he's an incredible lecturer. He's an inspiring person to his students. Uh, his lab does some really interesting research on things like grid-scale storage. The name of his, of his lab, Group Sadaway, they call it extreme electrochemistry. So I'm going to ask <laughs> him what that's all about. A few years ago, he did a TED Talk on this uh, grid-scale storage and the liquid metal battery uh, technology that his lab developed which has been spun out to a, a startup company called Ambry, and I think they're getting pretty close to market. Looks really interesting, really interesting. And as I think uh, a lot of ClimateX listeners will appreciate, that grid-scale storage is such a critical piece of moving our power system towards renewables. So looking forward to uh, learning a little more about how he does what he does. Sounds good. So let's take a listen to the interview then. So we are so happy to have Professor Don Sadaway, chemist, provocateur, and we expect to be having a, a lightning fast conversation on everything from storage to mining and all topics in the middle. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So how did you get to be a chemist? I think uh, when I was in high school, of all the subjects that I was exposed to, uh, chemistry uh, piqued my interest more so than any of the others. And then when I went off to college, I very quickly came to realize that I did not enjoy uh, organic chemistry. So I migrated over to metallurgy, which at that time was starting to evolve into more broadly material science. And uh, of all the professors at the University of Toronto in material science, metallurgy, there was this one who towered over everybody else in terms of intellectual capability and, and so many other features that made him a fabulous mentor. And his field was high-temperature electrochemistry. So, you know, if, he'd, if his specialty had been um, ceramics, well, I'm, you might have been talking to a ceramist today. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so that's how I got here. Uh, the, uh, the tagline on your group's website says, Extreme Electrochemistry. What's that mean? What is extreme? So extreme electrochemistry means electrochemistry in um, extreme conditions. So I've, I've already alluded to high temperature. So it's not aqueous. I mean, you know, water is for, for play. You know, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't work in water. So what kind of temperatures are we talking about? Oh, uh, 1,500 degrees centigrade up to, you know, 2,000, 2,200. So, for example, if, if I want to make steel... Um, so I'll start with uh, iron oxide derived from iron ore. Normally it takes about half a ton of carbon to make a ton of uh, steel. 
and steel's the number one anthropogenic source of CO2. 1.8 billion tons of steel per year, and it's all uh, blast furnace uh, production. So imagine a process in which you've got electricity being generated by uh, sun or wind, and then those electrons are converting iron oxide into steel. And instead of making CO2 as a byproduct, you make two-thirds of a ton of oxygen for every ton of of iron. So instead of making a liability, you make an asset. Now you have industrial oxygen, which has uh, value. Let me put that in, in context a little bit, what you just talked about. Um, sounds really cool that we're taking direct renewable generated energy and making stuff out of it. Is anybody doing that out in the field, though? Is it, or is this all conceptual still or lab stuff? It's something that I've been working on. And about uh, three years ago, I formed a company. I uh, thought it was time to, to do this. And we've designed and built a, a reactor that uh, runs at about 10,000 amperes. So this is not a um, little beaker on the lab bench. This makes uh, uh, hundreds of kilograms of metal. And we've demonstrated uh, the production of various ferroalloys. Like the conventional industry views this with uh, puzzlement. And I, I think that what will happen is that uh, disruption in the industry will come from outside the industry. Since we are, after all, a climate conversation, mm. how does this tie into climate change? And how, how does this basic electrochemistry address some of the big issues that we all care about? So the electrochemistry here in, in metal production attacks the, the central issue of uh, the use of carbon as the reducing agent. So most of these metals are found in the ground as oxides, and you've got to convert the oxide to metal. And carbon is the most favored reducing agent. And so, for example, it takes about a half a ton of carbon to make a ton of steel, and a blast furnace takes about a half a ton of carbon to make a ton of aluminum in the hall cell. And so right now, the world uh, capacity for steel is about 1.8 billion tons. And uh, when you make a ton of steel, you make about two tons of carbon dioxide. So they're making about four billion tons of carbon dioxide from the world steel industry. And please don't be dissuaded by these uh, publications of, uh, well, there's all this recycled steel and electric arc furnace and so on and so forth. That's true. But the world demand for steel requires more than just recycling steel. The demand for steel is far greater than that which we can acquire by recycle. And that's why the, the, the capacity for virgin metal, metal from dirt, is 1.8 billion tons. And so if that process could be displaced by a process that instead of using carbon and then emitting carbon dioxide, if instead it uses the electron as the reducing agent, and we know that the electron can be generated by burning fossil fuel, but it can also be generated by wind, uh, sun, uh, hydroelectric, nuclear. These are all carbon-free. And I know some of these have different meanings for different people, but let's just stipulate that it is possible to get carbon-free electrons. You you cannot get carbon-free carbon. Right? Yeah. So this is a really big deal, isn't it? Yeah. And one that uh, I don't hear people talking about very much. Well, you know, people we, don't talk about yeah, this is heavy yeah. metallurgy. People people yeah. are interested in, in tiny, and I'm not interested in nano. Nano for me is it's too it's too small. Some people love dealing with tens of atoms. I want to deal with tons of atoms. 
And, you know, societal problems are not going to be solved by tens of atoms. Yeah, we get you and the, the concrete folks, you know, in a one-two uh, one, punch. There's a lot of infrastructure stuff to deal with around, around uh, carbon emissions, isn't there? That's correct. That's correct. And that's, that's why I'm drawn to this. I mean, I was drawn to it, you know, f- full disclosure, I was drawn to it because as a student, I was inspired by this individual who happened to work in electrochemistry, and it was non-aqueous electrochemistry, so here I am. But over time, this non-aqueous electrochemistry has taken on greater significance because of the environmental benefits that it can uh, offer. And that has been a a source of uh, encouragement for me. So we know that you're fascinated by cars. Mm -hmm. How come? Well, I grew up in a, a town called Oshawa, Ontario. It's about 35 miles east of Toronto, and it is uh, the Detroit of Canada. And around 1994, I think it was, I was uh, teaching a class uh, here at MIT with uh, s- several other faculty. They were doing a class on, um, it was role-playing for uh, technology and policy, and there were 32 students divided into four groups of eight. And the assignment for that semester was how to uh, address air quality in the Los Angeles Basin. And uh, at the time, uh, California Air Resources Board had put out this uh, mandate that by 1998, something like 10% of all cars have to be all electric and so on. Nobody had an electric car yet, but they just said you have to build these things. And so they asked me if I would give uh, some lectures on batteries. And I wasn't working on batteries at the time. So I did some research. I knew some electrochemistry, and I gave a lecture on batteries. Then they said, give us another lecture on the environmental consequences of uh, metal production so that if we have an aluminum-intensive vehicle, is the emission of carbon dioxide and whatnot from an aluminum smelter worse than what you'd get from a steel mill so that by making a lighter car, all you're doing is shifting where the emissions come from. So, so I gave some lectures on that. So this is a really interesting story. As a result of that, we got invited, four of us, to go out to Ford, and they had built an all-electric car. What year was this? 94. And they were using uh, uh, sodium sulfur batteries. Mm-hmm. And those batteries were actually invented at Ford in 1966, and then nobody knew what to do with them because gasoline was 20 cents a gallon, so who needed batteries? So I drove this car, and they put a governor on it, so you couldn't go faster than 72 miles an hour. But that thing, it was fast. And and so I got back, and I realized the only reason that car is not out in, on the road in large numbers is the battery. Everything else is there. They have all the technology but the battery, because this, this uh, sodium sulfur battery runs at 325 degrees Celsius, and it needs to be babied because if it if it freezes and so on, it, there's all kinds of damage it'll accrue. And so I got back to MIT and I look in a mirror and I said, "Well, you're an electrochemist. Why don't you do something about it?" So I, I started working on batteries. So where are we going with batteries today? Yeah, I'm curious about the grid side of this because we've had a number of conversations about transitioning our power supplies, and uh, I know you've you've done a lot of work on grid scale storage as well. Yeah, so the grid-scale storage effort began around 2005. Susan Hockfield had become president of MIT, and one of her uh, major initiatives was going to be energy. And they had a planning council. They had two planning councils. One was planning for research, and one was planning for education. And uh, one of my colleagues came to me 
after a planning session, and uh, he said, you know, one of the big challenges that nobody has uh, any idea how to get their arms around is grid-level storage. You know, you've, you've done all his work in, you know, high-temperature metallurgy, and uh, you ever learn anything in that that might be of value to grid-level storage? And then he left my office. <laughs> so I started thinking about it, and uh, I staring at an image of an aluminum smelter. It runs 24-7, consuming vast quantities of electricity, and yet you make virgin metal for 50 cents a pound. So I looked at that and said, man, if I could figure out a way to teach that thing to not consume electricity, but to hold it and then give it back on demand, I'd have something that was big and cheap. Everybody else was looking at batteries that are in their phone and trying to figure out how to make them a thousand times bigger. And I said, I'm thinking about a storage device. It doesn't have to be a right circular cylinder. And so people were asking the wrong question. And so, so that's how I got into the, the whole business, eventually conceived of the liquid metal battery, and then um, the research really took off from there. Now, there, there's, still, there's still work to be done on the automotive propulsion, because I, I think that lithium-ion, it's, it's the best that we have right now, but we need to get a car on the showroom floor at the same price point as the gasoline-powered version of the same thing. And the, the batteries today fail on two counts. Number one is that their range isn't what it needs to be. Now we're starting to see cars that are, at least on day one, uh, giving you 200 miles of range. But uh, we all know from the behavior of our phones and our, our computers that uh, on day 301, uh, it's not going to go 200 miles because the capacity fade kicks in. And so that's the second point, which is the service lifetime. You know, the average, the average uh, ownership of a car in the United States today is in excess of eight years. People aren't trading their cars every three years the way they did in the 60s. They get a new phone every two years. They get a new laptop about every three or four. So you don't really wait until the battery is a paperweight. But if you're going to keep a car eight, ten years, you're going to be really unhappy in those late years because your your range is going to be unacceptably low and you say wow i got a warranty we're just going to rip the battery out well it's not like changing the the lead acid battery that's sitting right up top under the hood it's buried deep inside with all sorts of structural members around it so that if there is an impact that all of this is uh, impact absorbing so that the battery takes a, a much blunted strike so now to get in there to change those batteries, phenomenally expensive. So that's there's room there for something. Plus, there's a supply chain. I mean, you look at where lithium comes from. Where there's plenty of lithium on the planet, but it's maldistributed. But now the for the positive electrode, we're looking at things like cobalt oxide, and that comes from Congo, and the mining conditions are or unsavory, there's child labor, there's all sorts of things that if people understood what that supply chain looked like, they might put their phones down. So why not invent to something that's even better? So tell us, like in your imagination, what a completely different manufacturing cycle might look like. We've covered 
energy sources. We have covered mining. We have covered um, automobiles and mobile phones, so some of the central artifacts of modern society. So if you could do it over from scratch, what do you think you would do? Well, I would enunciate the principles that I give to my students and postdocs, and that is that you want to make something, uh, if you want to make something dirt cheap, you make it out of dirt, and preferably dirt that's locally sourced, so that batteries in India should be made with Indian resources in a manufacturing plant in India, staffed by Indian people, so that way they become authors of their own future. So uh, f from my perspective, I, I would look at uh, ways of making things much more uh, local and therefore at some level more uh, controllable because you're not, you're not relying on something coming from a, from a great distance. I wondered if you could say a few words about your role here at MIT as a teacher and as a person who's inspired a large number of students. What have you, what have you learned about teaching and instilling some of the some of the core values that you think are most important. Well, uh, for me, the the teaching was always a, a, a draw. I had the chance to teach this big freshman chemistry class, and quickly realized that there's much more going on than the lessons of the rudiments of chemistry. This is the first semester away for the students. Big changes for them. For many of them, it's you know they're unmoored, and. Uh, so I realized that this was a required class. 95% of the people in that room didn't want to be there. And so I had to think of ways to hold their attention because they're smart, but they're just not interested in chemistry. And so I started thinking about ways to, to engage beyond just the chemistry lessons. So I turned the class from a chemistry class into a chemistry-centered class. So there was all the chemistry was there, but then... You know, I, I decided to bring in art, literature, music, and so on in, in a way to sort of hook them. And I enjoyed that myself. So I, I learned a lot from, from that whole enterprise. Plus, I learned a lot of chemistry because times had changed and, and the subject matter had gotten richer and richer. I mean, back in, the, back in the 80s when I first started teaching recitation, we didn't do anything on polymers. Polymers had really surged in the 80s and 90s, so now I've got to, I've got to get some polymers in there. And the other big uh, change was the life sciences. So I've got to get life sciences. Well, I'm going to need five, six more lectures, but I can't have five or six more lectures. So I have to figure out ways to make the delivery of the pre-existing subject matter more efficient. It's not just give them handouts or, or write quickly or, or put a bunch of slides up faster than persistence of vision and hope that they retain something. You had to make things that are going to be uh, learned. And those exercises deepen my understanding. And I, and I can honestly say that research that we've been talking about, the liquid metal battery and how I chose the metals for the top electrode and the bottom electrode, they didn't come from advanced chemistry, density, functional theory, computational material science. They came from my knowledge of freshman chemistry. Yeah, I think that's, that's really inspiring to see the way that that gets woven through and people can see, hey, I'm, I can put this, this science that I'm learning here to you know, deep service of society. It's a, it's a powerful message. So we come to our final question of the day. Uh, we call it the magic wand question. 
So if you could wave a magic wand and make the world better in any fashion that you choose, but it should impact climate change in a good way, what would you do? I think the number one thing I would work on is electrification, sustainable electrification. The number one thing is, to my mind, education. And the key to education is electrification. There's a really nice uh, biography of Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson started out as a school teacher in rural East Texas. East Texas was one of the last places to be electrified. And there's this family that goes into town and uh, they're on the way back and, and all of a sudden the electricity has come on for the first time and I guess all the lights were in the on position. And when they were approaching, they thought the house was on fire. And then finally they go inside the house and they realize they can read. It's after dark and they can read. And that, that's, that's the power of, of, of electricity. That would be a great magic wand. I think thank you got a you. lot of people who uh, would agree with you on that one. Well, Professor Saddleway, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and waving your wand. Okay, my pleasure. We hope we'll see you again soon. Yeah, thank you for being in here. You're welcome. Boy, that was a uh, <laughs> fire hose of information. and uh, uh, I was really fascinated that uh, there's a lot more going on there than just grid-level storage. And I was fascinated by how his life was set by that one mentor. Yeah. I've been uh, talking to my kids as they're going through college about keeping their, their eyes open for those those key people. It's not just the subject, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's made it's made by who teaches it. I always find that. Like the subjects that I was bad at in school, even if I really, really sucked at it, it was that if the teacher was good, then I would turn up on time every day. Loved it. Yeah. And from what I hear from MIT students, Professor Sadaway is just that type of figure for them. Yeah. He's got a real good reputation on campus. Wonderful. Well, talking about key people, our key people are our listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> and we would love to hear from you. Yeah, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, we would really encourage you, if you have a spare moment, to subscribe and to leave us a review on iTunes. It's what helps us grow our community and expand and reach more people, uh, which is exactly what we want to do. So please do try and reach out to us that way. Yeah, tell your friends if, you, uh, if you're enjoying what you're listening to. You can find us on the web at climatex.mit.edu, on Facebook and Twitter, and our podcast is wherever podcasts are listened to. Absolutely. And if you uh, if you want to recommend a guest to us, if you'd like to pose a topic that we discuss in one of our podcasts, please get in touch with us at climatex underscore feedback at mit.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye.